Well, good morning, everybody. Uh, We're going to turn to our passage, our Bible reading, which is in Romans chapter 9. And we'll read the first 18 verses. Romans chapter 9, verse 1. I'm speaking the truth in Christ. I'm not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. They are Israelites, and to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs, And from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ, who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. But it is not as though the word of God has failed. For not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. And not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring. But, quote, Through Isaac shall your offspring be named. This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. For this is what the promise said. About this time next year I will return and Sarah shall have a son. And not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, Though they were not yet born and had done nothing, either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls, she was told, the older will serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. What shall we say then? Is there injustice? And God's part, by no means. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy. And I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then, it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose I have raised you up, That I might show my power in you and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then, he has mercy on whomever he wills and he hardens whomever he wills. Amen. May God's word uh, teach us and instruct us this morning. This is a new section. Uh, that we've come to in the book of Romans. Uh, it runs to the end of chapter 11, 9 through to 11, and there's a bit of a change of gear uh, as far as Paul uh, is concerned. So much so that some people, um, they describe this uh, really not so much as a, as a change of gear, but as a diversion. <laughs> uh, they look on it as a, as a parenthesis, you know, as almost as though you put this, this section in brackets Uh, And then after he's dealt with it, he gets back on track again when you come to to chapter 12. I would have to say I don't think that is the case. 
What Paul is doing is he's looking at another angle as far as his overarching main theme and subject of the book is concerned. The whole point of the book is to do with righteousness. Uh, Just briefly recapping, so you've got the first five verses which have to do with what we have called positional righteousness, how people can be just with God, justification. Chapters 6 to 8 are to do with progressive righteousness, sanctification, how Christians develop really in that way of righteous living. Chapters 12 to 16 have to do with very practical, specific examples of righteousness. What we have in this section is righteousness to do with God himself. That God himself is righteous. This passage has actually to do with what God is like. There are two questions that kind of come up in the, pa- well, in the passage that we're looking at today. There's more in the chapter. Uh, the first question is a kind of implied one uh, and in verse number six. And uh, the question really is, um, so then, you know, God, God has really failed. God has failed. We'll come to the implication of that. And the second one is uh, down in verse number 14. Uh, Is there injustice on God's part? Uh, These are criticisms. Uh, This is what the gospel is being accused of. God is being accused of. Not being fair and having failed. And and what he's trying to do here is he's he's trying to answer uh, these accusations from what we have. You see, what happens is this. The critics are looking at the gospel and they're saying, you know, there's a failure here. There's, there's something that has to be wrong. And also, there is an inherent injustice in the gospel. And, and for those reasons, they, they reject it. So, so we've got to try and work out how, how these criticisms uh, are answered as we understand something about God. And the overarching point is this from the passage. We should be finding this out that God is sovereign and God is righteous. And we learn about God in this passage. So let's, let's start at verse number one uh, and just kind of introduce it before we come to answering these questions. So he starts off by talking about his uh, fellow countrymen, his kinsmen. Paul's a Jew, and he's talking about his fellow uh, Israelites. And he talks about his, his genuine concern. He talks about his sorrow for them. And the reason for that sorrow is because for the majority of them, the majority of the Jewish people at this time had rejected Christ. You know, the, the, the gospel had started off, of course, in, in Israel, uh, centered in Jerusalem. And initially, the first believers were were Jewish people. But uh, there had developed a a growing resistance. Of course, initially, it was the the Jewish people who put Christ, along with the Romans, on the cross. Everywhere Paul traveled in his missionary journeys, the most virulent opposition that he encountered seemed to come from the synagogue and from the Jewish community. And what is happening by this time is, in the growth of the church, in the history of the church, is that the, the majority are now non-Jews. 
The majority are now Gentiles. And the Jewish people are increasingly disbelieving and resistant and rejecting uh, the gospel. And, uh, and this is why this question comes in, actually, in verse number 6. It looks as though they're saying to Paul, God's word has failed. For all the effort, for all the privileges, for everything that has been done for these people, it doesn't seem to have achieved anything at all. God's word would appear to have failed singularly as far as the Jewish people are concerned. Now let me just point out a few points that come from this first section, uh, these first few verses. When Paul talks about his sorrow for them and his unceasing anguish, I mean, you can see by the way that he says it, I mean, this is genuine. I mean, this is not a show. It's not some sort of drama um, that he's putting on for effect. This is genuinely how he feels about his own people. He's upset about them. This is, this is a reality. Now, I mean, there's a big challenge in there for all of us who are Christians. And the, and the challenge is this, as I, I, I look at myself. I think about my friends. I think about my neighbors, the people I work with, and my family members who are not Christians and who don't know the Lord Jesus and they're not saved. Do I feel about them the same way as Paul felt about these people? Do I have the same degree of concern for their spiritual welfare to pray for them and to teach them the gospel as he did? And that comes uh, enormously. And, 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 and that, that is because he recognizes the consequences of them continuing to live and die separated from Christ. You see how he puts that there. He says, I wish that I was accursed, not them. I wish I was cut off from Christ rather than they were. That's how much I care. I do care for them. It's not as if I live my life and I just doesn't come into my thinking about them at all. I care for them to this extent because I see the consequences, the potential consequences uh, of it all. Now, this word cursed, you know, we don't use that very often these days. Seems terribly kind of medieval, doesn't it, to use a word like that. And yet, it's a Bible word, and we need, and we need to understand uh, what this means. That the word cursing is the opposite of the word blessing. You know, if you're blessed, it means that that's something good, that's something positive. It's a spiritual positive thing. If you're cursed, it's the very opposite of that. It's a negative, bad thing. And of course, this is the word that is introduced right at the very start of our Bible, at the time of the fall of man, the disobedience of Adam and Eve, when a curse is placed on humanity and upon the world. And a curse has been placed on our world. You know, some people, they will use this word. You know, if they live in a situation where um, there's famine, there's disease, there's war, there's violence. You know, our society seems to be cursed by these things. There is a curse that has been placed upon our, our world. And death is the culmination of that and separation from the God of love. And, and what he's really saying is this, that he, he recognizes the fact 
that, that people might not only live in that setting, but may die in that setting and be eternally cursed and cut off from Christ. And because of that, this is how he expresses himself. And this is how he feels. And that is why he knows the gospel and salvation is needed. The third thing about this first section is this. He recognizes that this is their position despite all their privileges. I mean, they had tremendous privileges. I mean, look at how it describes it here in verse number uh, 4 and 5. That the, the heritage, the spiritual heritage of the people, they, they had been given God's law. They had the patriarchs, the spiritual fathers. They had uh, the temple worship. And from them, naturally speaking, the Messiah had come. I mean, all these things stretching over hundreds of years, the heritage of the scriptures, the teaching of the Bible, everything had been given to them on a plate. And despite all that heritage and despite all these privileges, they, they turn their back on it and they reject it. And they, they, they refuse to come to Christ. And, 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 and is that not a lesson for, for us as well? Some of us who have had many privileges that others have not had. And the challenge would be, despite my privileges, how have I responded? By the way, we have here in verse number 5, one of the greatest statements about the deity of Christ that you will ever have in the scriptures. The Messiah is being mentioned here. The Lord Jesus. And this is what it says about him. Who is God over all. Blessed forever. Amen. I mean that is, that is the description of Christ. In his, not a mere man. Not a wise prophet. God over all. Blessed forever. And it's at this point that these two questions, these two criticisms kind of uh, come in. So let, let's look at them one at a time. Uh, the first one is this, this implied uh, question. It looks as though, doesn't it, Paul, that uh, this grand plan, this grand project of God to the Jewish people, it's just been a big failure. Despite all of that, they, they don't believe uh, and this is what he says, but it's not as though the word of God has failed. And what he's going to do as he tries to answer that is he's going to take um, two examples, two illustrations from their own history. And uh, he, he cites, first of all, Abraham, and then he cites Isaac. And, and what he's saying is this. Verse number 6. Not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. Now that might seem a bit kind of gobbledygook and, you know, a bit obscure. But, but what he's really saying is this. Now, he says, historically, it has always been the case that not all the descendants physically actually of Abraham, the father of the nation, not all of them were genuine believers. And he uses these two examples. 
So first of all, he takes the example of, of Isaac and Ishmael. Both of them had Abraham as their father. But he says only one of them, Isaac, was the child of promise. Ishmael wasn't a believer. Isaac was the believer. That's true today, he says, as you look around, that's, that's what you're criticizing us for. But that was true then. And then he gets even more specific when he talks about Jacob and Esau, who are not just the sons of one man, but they're twins. So they just don't come from one family. They come from one womb. And you have Jacob and Esau, and yet we have only one of them who becomes a believer, and the other one does not. And uh, the point is made here, as far as the, the call of God is concerned, or the word that is used down in verse number 11, though they were not yet born, had done nothing, either good or bad, in order that God's purpose, here's the word, of election, might continue. Not because of works, but because of him who calls, she was told the older will serve the younger, As it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I I hated. This is God's purpose in election. Jacob was chosen, Esau was not. Now, what that means is this. God chose to set his love and place his grace on, on Isaac rather than Ishmael, on Jacob rather than on Esau. And that is why some believe and some don't. It's not a failure on God's part. This is the way that God has determined that things will be in his sovereignty. This is how it will be. And as you can see down in verse 15, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy. I will have compassion on whom I choose to have compassion on. Now, I know what you're thinking. You're thinking exactly what the guys are thinking in this chapter. That's why uh, the question, the second question comes up in verse 14. Well, this doesn't seem right. This doesn't seem fair. There seems to be some injustice. Is there injustice on God's part? Well, Paul, Paul of course, is very, very clear on this. And he, and he closes down that very quickly. You know how he says that, by no means. Absolutely not. I mean, how could God be unjust? How could God be unrighteous? How could God ever do anything that was unfair? But what we are talking about is that God is sovereign. And these chapters, this section, 9 through to 11, it's all about how God sovereignly deals with individuals and how he also deals with nations, and in particular, the nation of Israel. And that even includes things that are yet future to our time. And and we'll come to that when we get to uh, chapter number 11. God, God is sovereign as far as that is concerned. 
and has compassion and whoever he wishes to. Now, the issue you see with our thinking and the reason that we kind of don't feel comfortable with this and we take a step back and we think this isn't fair and that's why the question is posed it's because of where we are coming from because what we we think is this we we look upon ourselves we look upon the group that's here we look upon our friends and so forth and and we're thinking basically that that we're all decent people reasonable people at the very least we're we're kind of neutral people Whereas where we should be coming from, from a biblical perspective, is that every single person has fallen short of the glory of God. Every single person is classified a sinner. We went through all of that in the early chapters of Romans. And, and, and God, therefore, owes us nothing. There is no expectation at all on God's part that he should have compassion upon us. That, 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 that he should forgive us and clear our sin. When we all stand inherently guilty and condemned before God. And, and that is the position. And the wonder, actually, the most astonishing thing, as somebody has said, when you look at verse 13, is the first part of that statement. It's not the second part. The wonder of it all is that he actually says, Jacob I have loved. I mean, why would he do that? I mean, why would he love Isaac? Why would he love anybody? Because of the inherent resistance and sinfulness of our hearts. But he does do that. I mean, it's as if there was ten condemned criminals. You know, uh, Jeffrey Epstein characters. And, uh, and God in his compassion, decides to forgive one of them. I mean, the, the other nine have no real basis for saying that's not fair, that he didn't forgive me. There was, there was, no, there was nothing that, that, that should have given rise to any expectation that the rest of them should have been forgiven. It was entirely on the basis of the sovereign compassion And grace of God. That's where we need to start from. When we come to look at a subject. uh, Like this one. That is before us today. Um, When it comes to the salvation of humanity. We need God to intervene. I mean that is the other point about this whole. Teaching regarding election. And the call of God. By the way, this is not just Paul's notion. Jesus himself taught this. Jesus also taught that uh, nobody can come to the Father. Nobody can come to me unless my Father draws him. We don't reach a conclusion about Christ just totally by logic. We need the Spirit of God to touch our hearts to change our minds, to convince us of our sinfulness and to reveal the greatness and the glory of Christ and the sufficiency of his, his work upon the cross. God does that work. It's a work of God. And that is what the doctrine of election uh, is all about. Uh, the, the next point regarding election is this, that it doesn't rule out 
The fact that I have personal responsibility in this. Now, you know, I, I toyed this morning about, about doing this as a big overview thing. And, and I think there is some merit in that. But from the point of view of time, and we're even running out of it as it is, I decided against that. But part of the reason for thinking about that in the first place is that, you know, we're, we're just coming to the first bit of the argument here. Uh, and the first bit of the argument is about God's sovereignty. As you go down the passage, if you get to the end of this passage and go into chapter 10, the big play, the big emphasis is that people need to have faith. Now, we can't put that together in our minds. I mean, that doesn't seem logical to us. We can't understand that, how at one level it's saying there's God having compassion on people and, and placing his love on certain individuals. And yet, at the other, on the other hand, people are actually definitely held responsible for their decisions and for their lack of faith. And yet, both of these things are here. They're both here. And we'll come to that when we, when we come next week to, to the end of the chapter. Um, now, the point about all of that is this, that, of course, we're dealing with God and God's words. And that's why, in fact, if you turn to the end of this section... If you turn to the last few verses of chapter number 11, it, it ends with a doxology. Uh, it ends with a hymn of worship to God. And look at what it says, verse 33. The depths of the riches and the wisdom and knowledge of God, how unsearchable are his judgments, how inscrutable are his ways, who has known the mind of the Lord? Who has been his counselor? Who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? For from him, through him, and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. This passage is all about God and his wisdom and how inscrutable his ways are. And, and we, can't, we can't put that together. And, and therefore we have to stand in awe of God and understand it. His ways are best. And that's what we come to when we think about this doctrine of, of election. So we look at God and we don't see a failed project and we don't see unrighteousness. But we see his glory and his compassion but also his firmness, his sovereignty and his justice. And as we close, there is one further example that he gives. And the example that is here for us is the example of Pharaoh, verse 17. The scripture says, to Pharaoh. Now this, of course, takes us back to the time of the Exodus, when the people of God are, are rescued and, and delivered. And of course, when Moses goes to Pharaoh, uh, if you read through that whole story in Exodus chapter 7, Moses presents himself on numerous occasions to Pharaoh. And he says, you know, this is the message from God. Let my people go. And time and time again, it's recorded, and Pharaoh hardened his heart. Pharaoh hardened his heart. You know, he was not prepared to give in. He was not prepared to accept it. He would not yield 
He made his heart hard. And then eventually, in the story, you come across this verse. Then God hardened Pharaoh's heart. That is what we call judicial hardness. God did that as an act of judgment on Pharaoh. It's very similar to what we we came across in chapter 1 of of Romans. You know, these people that God, God said about them, and God gave them up to the desires of their own heart. They went in for all of this stuff. They rejected God. God said, that's what you want. There you go. And their hearts were hardened. And that's what God did to Pharaoh. And the reason that Pharaoh was raised up was that God would show his power and that his name would be proclaimed in all the earth. This is about God. It's about his sovereignty. It's about his righteousness. Abraham, on one occasion, said about God, to God actually, Shall not the judge of all the earth do what is right? And he accepted that. And he bowed his heart to that before God. And that is what we need to do as well. As we think of both the sovereignty and the righteousness of God. To worship him and to realize his character. Now shall we pray. Lord, we realize your ways are above ours and uh, they're past finding out and we cannot fit a lot of these things together with the limits of our natural minds and yet they're here for us in scripture. The one part, portion of it that we've been able to consider before the others is about your sovereignty and righteousness and your election. And those of us who belong to you, we, we bow our hearts to worship We bow our hearts to worship that in your goodness you should set your love upon us and that you should waken us up and that you should touch our lives and reveal to us our need of a saviour. And Lord, we just pray um, that none of us will have a hardened heart, resistant, so that at some point you then harden our hearts and give us up to the desires and attitudes that we have pursued for so long. And so, Lord, we pray for all of us. As we ask in Christ's name, amen.